from KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schock. But what they don't want is that they don't want a, a religious organization to come to them and tell them what they have to believe in order to experience God. And um, that's the, the kind of conundrum I think that some uh, faith groups are in right now. You know, so how do they engage in theological conversations but escape the old image of doctrinal sort of exclusivity? Where is God? For an increasing number of people, God is not in church, mosque, synagogue, temple, or other traditional religious place. Yet, the question, where is God, is a question people are seriously asking. And they're finding their answer in the dirt, water, air, home, neighbor, and commons. Diana Butler-Bass is an historian of religion. She's the author of nine books on American religion, including Christianity After Religion, Christianity for the Rest of Us, and A People's History of Christianity. She spoke with me a few years ago about her last book, Christianity After Religion, and is with me today to talk about her latest book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. Via phone from her home in Alexandria, Virginia, welcome, Dr. Bass, to Religion for Life. It's great to be back with you. I remember what a wonderful conversation we had when my last book came out. Yes, I enjoyed that very much, that book, Christianity After Religion. Uh, let's start with that. Uh, can you take a moment and give kind of a quick summary of that book and then how this book, Grounded, uh, kind of follows that? Oh, you know, that's a that's a really good question because um, Christianity After Religion had a really interesting and kind of provocative thesis, and that was, even though it looks like we live in a time of decline, I actually suggested we live in a time of spiritual awakening. Mm. And um, I will never forget one time when I was with a group of Presbyterian ministers, and uh, I, I was pointing out to the group that over the couple years since the book had been out, people loved talking to me about religious decline. They they wanted all those statistics about how religion was changing. And they really loved the middle part of Christianity after religion, where I suggest a set of new questions that are emerging regarding faith. But I had noticed that hardly anybody wanted to talk about the idea of spiritual awakening. And so I mentioned this to this group of ministers, and one fellow raised his hand, and he said, well, I can tell you why that is. And I said, why? And he said, well, because we don't believe you. And I, I kind of just sort of started, you know, I mean, I kind of you know, got startled, and, and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we just don't see it. And when he said that, I realized that sometimes we don't, we don't have a lot of hope, or we don't see spiritual awakening because we don't know what to look for. And I think in some ways his comment, or that kind of really challenging question, um, was the beginning of Grounded, because I began to ask myself, okay, if there is a spiritual awakening, what does it look like? And how can I communicate that in story and, uh, and you know, words to be able to enable people to see more deeply into the times in which we live? And that's what Grounded became, um, a set of stories, essentially, from my own life and from the world around me and from the Bible and from other world religions as well, um, about how how God is showing up now. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of get where that Presbyterian minister is coming from. Uh, 
I am one too, and part of the institution, and, and we somehow have got this message that, well, it isn't spiritual if it isn't in our institution. So uh, yes, there certainly is a spiritual awakening, but it's outside of church and mosque and temple. It's uh, outside of the religious organizations. Tell, tell us so what organized religion is getting wrong. Um, well, the thing that I talk about in, in uh, Grounded is I point out how religion for the last uh, several hundred years, at the very least, and maybe close on to even a thousand, has been basically structured according to how we viewed the universe. And the way we viewed the universe has been according to what I call the vertical universe, where we still have this, where we are still holding on to this ancient idea of three separate sort of spheres where there's heaven above us, we're on earth right here, this is the sphere we know, and then below us is is this thing that religion has referred to as hell, the underworld, whatever that is. And so these three spheres in this vertically structured universe, um, that's the way we understood science, it's the way we understood philosophy, it's also the way we understood social hierarchies and even economic life, is that whatever was at the top of this sort of uh, vertically structured society was closest to God, and whatever was at the bottom uh, was dirty or, uh, you know, distant or unclean, un- impure. And so uh, that structure has basically been the structure of religion for a very long time. And it's, of course, it, the sort of ways we interpreted it or the ways we practiced it or the questions we had about that structure changed over time. But the structure never really went away. And so what's happening now in the 21st century is that vertically structured sort of chain of being universe where we believe in social and spiritual and economic and all sorts of different kinds of hierarchies, all of that is being challenged by science and by philosophy and by uh, political theory, by technology, and the universe is being rearranged even as you and I are talking, um, and that is we're moving away from verticality towards a universe that's structured uh, more horizontally. And we talk about that all the time. We talk about a web of life. We talk about connectivity. We talk about ecosystems. We talk about environments. And so this kind of shift from vertical to horizontal is probably the the biggest change that we're going through in our social understandings. And with that, the old structure of the church, which was a vertically structured institution, is really being challenged uh, to become something new. And uh, whatever that new thing is, it's going to have to relate to the idea that we live in a web of life or a connected universe or a social and spiritual ecosystem. And that's not the way we've been talking about God or the way we've been talking about theology for the last millennium. You know, I often will, with my congregation, do a lot of deconstruction of this old theology uh, and, you know, how it how it isn't working and talking about science and so forth. But the question I keep getting from folks is, well, You've kind of deconstructed us, uh, so uh, what What do you replace it with? If the old man in the sky is kind of out of business, uh, what understanding of God do we are we finding today? Yeah, you know, that, to me that's kind of a 
in a, a sense, it's an honest question, but it's also sort of a funny question. Because mm-hmm. honestly, how many people really do believe in an old man in the sky? <laughs> you know, right. I mean, how long have we? How long has that? idea about God been under siege. It's been at least a hundred years, if not longer. But but I and, think people uh, still think of a supernatural being or something out there yes, doing they stuff. Do. They, I, I think, uh, you know, they have this sense that there's, uh, I like that what you're saying, a supernatural being that kind of is occupying some territory that's very far away from here. Um, so what do we replace that with? Well, it's interesting because most religions already have hints and clues about this. Um, even while the vertical universe was kind of in full force and most people just actually did believe in kind of a grandfatherly figure in the sky, I, I refer to that that idea of the old man in the sky as the image of God that sort of haunts Western culture. And so um, so we have this sort of haunting image in our deepest imaginations about that, that distant being. But even while, when that was in full force and few people thought to question it, there was at least some uh, some people who did question it. And those people have come down to us as saints and mystics. And so, for example, in the Catholic tradition, the sort of the larger Christian tradition, we have, you know, people like Julian of Norwich and Hildegard of Bingen and Francis of Assisi. I mean, people we revere and remember and we, we're passionate about and we're glad that they wrote down their experiences of faith, um, those folks understood a God that was not far away. Those people understood God who was close at hand and oftentimes used nature, images of nature um, to describe that God um, and also neighborliness. They talked a lot about um, finding God in people and communities in which they found, in which they lived, in which they experienced the relationships with other human beings, and so um, you know, I think about for something, for example, uh, as Saint Patrick's breastplate, which is the beautiful song we sing in Anglicanism: Christ within me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ within me, Christ in face of friend and stranger, and that kind of image of God is actually present in Christianity, and it's present in Judaism, and it's present in Islam and Buddhism, when Buddhists are theists, not all Buddhists are theists. Um, but it's it's a, a deep kind of awareness of a God who is so close to us, and a God that is so intimate that that God is with us in all that we do and everything we experience. And so there is at hand an alternative that is all, that is uh, part of our tradition and is an alternative that you can actually preach. You could preach the entirety of the Gospel of the New Testament and never once refer to a God in a far-off place in heaven, but instead preach this kind of idea of a very grounded, very intimate, very um, close close-in sense of the sacred, the God God who is with us, Jesus. The kingdom of God is within. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Diana Butler-Bass. She's the author of a new book uh, that just uh, was released in October, I believe, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. Now, throughout the book, you take stories and themes uh, from the Bible, uh, and I— We've made a move with historical criticism to understand the Bible as a human book as opposed to a book revealed from on high. Christianity, in particular Protestants, have have made religious claims about the Bible that don't seem 
well, credible any longer. Inerrancy is an obvious one, but even the sense that it's kind of the Word of God or a magical book or something like that. Is, but is the Bible—here's my question—is the Bible in some sense spiritual if it isn't religious? Well, I, I think that the Bible—it's it, funny to even talk about the Bible, because the Bible is, you know, a whole big collection of mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. And I understand the Bible primarily as a collection of the written experiences of both ancient Israel and the early Christian community. So uh, when you ask the question, is it is the Bible spiritual rather than religious, I think that the whole Bible is, that's exactly the point, <laughs> is that, that it really is a collection of profound and moving spiritual experiences of our ancestors. And, you know, then these experiences have been gathered together. And there is some stuff in the Bible that is religious, you know, sort of directions about how who should be ministers or how to build a temple. Uh, but most people don't even read that stuff. <laughs> you know, that's uh-huh. the boring stuff. You know, <laughs> no, I don't know that many people who sit around and read about the cubits of the of the of of Noah's Ark or how big the temple is. But when we're really passionate about the Bible, we're we're reading the stories about Moses or David or uh, you know Sarah or we're reading the stories about about uh, faith and and infidelity and restoration and they're all stories about experience and and uh, I've, I've been reading uh, Job a lot this year which I've found to be a amazing book in midlife and uh, that's a story about one guy losing everything and being angry at God and trying to put all the pieces back together again and that is one of the most contemporary sorts of stories that I hear among my friends, um, people who are angry at religion, angry at the church, because they feel like God has sort of taken everything away from them. And so they, they, they walk off on a huff and they scream at God, where are you, where are you, God, where are you, God? And uh, Job is kind of, to me, a person who is re- in the process of rejecting religion in order to find a new relationship with God. So I, 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 I kind of, I read it with, I read the scriptures with a very sort of experiential eye. And uh, I think it's, I think it's wonderful that we have these stories and that people thought to write them down. Uh, yes. And so much in, in terms of modern, so much in terms of theology has been to kind of, I think, uh, imprison the Bible in dogma. And, yeah, me uh, too. Yeah, and so that's that's where I was thinking of the the religious part of it. It religion. Oh, we I think see. of religion. We think of. I mean, who likes the word religion anymore? I mean, my my show is called Religion for Life, and I've had critics say religion for life, religions for death. <laughs> you know. Well, I got I got it. I got news for you, John. I can tell you exactly. Only nine percent of Americans say that they like the word religion without some qualifier attached to it. Oh man, I probably have a marketing problem with my show then. <laughs> Because religion really is focused on on those kinds of negative things, isn't it? Uh, well, you know, I hate I hate to break that news to you, but uh, I mean, and it's sad because the the original meaning of the word religion was to to bind together, and and that didn't mean to bind together to throw somebody in jail, but it meant to sort of hold together, to restitch the pieces, to weave a me- a sense of meaning, and of course that older sense of it. Um, you know, has basically gotten lost in the last, especially in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, 
And now people do tend to think of the word religion as negative. They think of it as institutional or organized or dogmatic or authoritarian. And so the connotations have become very bad. And a lot of what people used to understand as religious, um, prayer, uh, theological reflection, sort of the relationality of practices like hospitality and forgiveness and things like that, people now think of that as spirituality, where they once thought of that as, you know, religion or church work. And so the language has shifted around all these things, um, but, but it doesn't, you know, I don't think it sort of, um, it, it, what, it, what I think it points to is that churches and other organizations that do things like hospitality and forgiveness and prayer, they have to think of how they present that. Um, in their communities, and they mm-hmm. have to think about uh, lifting those aspects of faith up rather than aspects of faith are, you know, like the rule book. You know, people people are not very happy with rule rule books right now. You know, things you should and shouldn't do, and uh, also the idea of theological reflection. That's a rich idea. People do that all the time in our culture. Um, you know, you you and I are talking during a week when religion has been big news about. Mm-hmm. Um, about ISIS and the, the terrorist attack in in, uh, in San Bernardino, and then the kind of crazy remarks that Donald Trump made about Muslims, and so people are talking about that stuff all over the place. But what they don't want is that they don't want a, a religious organization to come to them and tell them what they have to believe in order to experience God, and um, that's the, the kind of conundrum I think that some. Uh, faith groups are in right now. You know, so how do they engage in theological conversations but escape the old image of doctrinal sort of exclusivity? Yeah. You know, the names of the chapters of your book, a book in two sections, the first, uh, uh, I guess, and isn't really quite the word right, nature, but, you know, earth, water, sky, and fire, and then the second one about human relationships. Uh, the, the titles, earth, water, sky, fire, home, um, uh, neighborhoods, commons, that is where you say God is now. Yeah. I was just essentially opening my own imagination to the world around me and looking for where I found God. And uh, by doing that, I, was, uh, I, I don't just use my experiences like, oh, I found this and I'm, I'm so smart. Uh, but as a writer, I've always tried to use the personal narrative as a way of inviting people into their own personal narratives as well. Mm-hmm. So, so I tell my story as a way of opening up your story. And the story of all all people who would read this book, and to say, hey, our stories as regular people actually matter. Uh, but um, so I walk out into my world, and I started to explore these different sort of uh, sacred locations, as it were, in nature and through my neighbor, and it was wonderful. I actually feel like this book. The one of the impulses for me as a writer was I I tell people I. I let loose my inner Annie Dillard. Hmm. Uh, if you know those beautiful books that Annie Dillard wrote some 20, 30 years ago. And uh, what she would do is she, she has this incredible um, observational sense about nature. And so like Pilgrim of Tinker Creek, you know, she goes out and she sits by this creek for a year and she writes about that. And um, so what I was trying to do in my, my book was to take that kind of observational sense 
and not just have it be about the creek, but to have it be about the sort of the whole world in which I move. And so I wind up writing about, as you say, dirt, water, and sky. And then I also write about uh, my I write about home, which has got to be one of my favorite mm-hmm. chapters in the whole book. I write about the shifting kinds of ways we understand home and what constitutes our home and the threats to our homes. And that was, that was a fabulous uh, chapter for me mm-hmm. uh, to, to write. And then uh, I write about neighborhoods and commons and all of those things. I take this close eye and try to say, what, where is God? Where is God in this spiritual ecology? And um, that's how the that's how the book was put together, and it's very purposeful to try to hold together nature and neighbor as a sort of a complete experience of the world that we inhabit. Now, my atheist buddies are going to tell me you need to ask her, in the sense of do is God necessary in the equation at all? If God has come back to earth, is there a, tell, well, and I want to put it in a way that might be, uh, need to be, you know, kind of defending or something, but what does the language of God do for you in terms of connecting with nature and neighbor? That might be the question I have been asked most in the last eight weeks, especially mm. since my book tour started in Seattle and Portland. Yeah. And uh, boy, uh, folks, I live on the East Coast, and folks who in religious communities, faith communities out here in the East do not really understand the way things are changing in the western part of uh, North America right now uh, regarding theism. And so, so anyway, but it is a question I think about. And for me... Um, the language of God is a language that is almost an accountability language. Um, it is very hard, I think, for us as human beings to really, truly love, to really, truly do justice, to really, truly commit ourselves to uh, you know, kind of going that extra mile for other human beings, um, unless there is something that's just beyond our own experience that holds us to a, a, account. Now, for my friends who are atheists, of which I have many, um, they, that is humanism or a deep commitment, you know, to uh, the continuation of the planet, or sometimes mm-hmm. it's art. Or music, or, or poetry, great, mm-hmm. or yeah. poetry, or great philosophy, and so atheists actually have that um, that that sense of something that is right beyond the immediate, unless they're nihilists, in which case then there's only them and their you know their own power or this own, just this moment. But most people who have some sort of altruistic kind of worldview have something that exists in the space that goes beyond us as individuals. And um, for me, uh, and I think for millions and millions and millions of other people through time, uh, that thing is called God. And so I, I can honor the fact that people I know live very altruistically without God, but it becomes, it, I can't quite do that. And I think there are a lot of other people who can't quite do that. So what I was trying to do was, for those people who still feel like God is the space beyond our individual experience, uh, our individualism, 
um, and that God is compassion, and that God is that commitment to justice, and that God is is the reason for existence, meaning, and purpose. Um, what we have to do is that we have to be in this, I think, gigantic sort of um, moment of relocating that God, because the distant God has proved himself mm-hmm. um, not very helpful in this particular day and age. That distant God is either not on duty, because he doesn't appear to be showing up to fix a whole bunch of stuff we need fixing, Um, or there are a lot of people in the world who say that distant God is making them do horrible things. Yeah. You know, like terrorist acts and cutting people's heads off and... Uh, you know, killing people of a variety of different religions. Yeah, it seems to me that we're going to have God around for a while, uh, and the image and better one. <laughs> yeah, and so if 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 God's going to be there, if we've grown up with God or whatever the case is, let's make God real, and uh, or let's you know. Uh, let's understand God in a sense that God is really right here in the dirt and in in human relationships. Right, and and to look and and to understand really truly deeply that that God is a God of love and compassion. Mm-hmm. And as when God is far away, it's it's much easier to see God as a judge or um, sort of an angry deity throwing you know stones at us or uh, these kinds of far-off kinds of ideas about relationality, it is, it is very hard to imagine love being at a distance. And so this idea of relocating God to be with us in this deeply intimate way is to highlight the aspects of God that are love and compassion. And that is what is really, truly needed right now. We just have about a minute left. I, I There was a uh, a part in your book that was intriguing to me, uh, much of much of it all was, but I mean, there's a, there's part that I it was your story a little bit you're in the section on chapter on commons and nine eleven. You write about a conversion of yourself. Uh, you write on September twelfth that you converted to the world. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, the, on September eleventh, that that level of fear and pain and confusion was so enormous. I kind of woke up the next morning, and um, as I relate in the book, I was driving my daughter to preschool as President Bush asked us to just go about our normal business, and I live in Washington, D.C., so that's what I did. I got in the car and I drove her, was driving her to preschool, and I heard um, the song, What a Wonderful World. Hmm, and I, really reali- I realized that the only way to overcome fear and anger and suffering and revenge was to embrace the world more fully rather than to run away from it. And I think that right now so many people are afraid, but the anecdote to fear is not hiding in your closet. The anecdote to fear is throwing ourselves into the world and loving creation more and loving our neighbor more than we could ever imagine. And that is Diana Butler Bass and her latest book, a beautiful book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. Thank you for it. And thank you for being with me today on Religion for Life. 
Oh, John, it's been a pleasure to talk about it. I hope that folks who listen to your show will read the book and love it and and find God uh, in the world of nature around them and also with their neighbors. You've been listening to Religion for Life, but don't be confused by the title. It's not one of those kinds of shows. Spirituality, science, social justice, and religion from an educational point of view is our goal. Find podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Podomatic, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast app, as well as my website, religionforlife.com. Heard on radio stations in Tennessee, Virginia, and North Carolina, Religion for Life is produced at KBOO Portland. I'm John Schuck. Be well. Be well.